Welcome. You're listening to The Drive Podcast, a ministry of First Baptist Orlando. In our current series, we are walking through the letter of Philippians as the Apostle Paul writes to encourage the people of Philippi to live out their faith with joy and in unity. Let's listen in and see what God has in store for us. I am glad you guys are here. I saw like six or seven first-time visitor cards back there. Two of those tables weren't even full like three minutes ago, so... It's cool to see you guys tonight. Welcome to The Drive. Uh, If it's your first time coming, there's a first-time visitor card on your table. Please grab it, fill it out if you haven't already. We want to be able to reach out to you, get to know you, uh, touch base with you on our social media fronts. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter. Haven't tweeted in weeks. Uh, Confession. What is the, uh, the most valuable thing you have ever owned? Rhetorical question. I don't want to embarrass anyone who is about to say my Pogs collection. Anybody here remember Pogs? Yeah, a couple of, couple of the dudes. You know, I had some pretty sweet slammers back in the day. My dad had a five-finger Jackie Robinson glove, and it was his dad's before him, my grandfather's. And my grandfather grew up playing with this glove all the way through Little League and, and high school ball. And then he gave it to my dad, and my dad grew up playing with that glove as well. And <clears throat> then it was handed down to me, and I promptly gave it away. You see, what happened was there was this neighborhood kid, and I really wanted him to be my friend, and he was kind of mean and a bully, and I thought maybe I could buy his friendship. And, and it didn't work. He took the glove, and I never saw him again. Uh, the glove wasn't very valuable, you know, in terms of dollars and cents, but it had a lot of mileage. It had a huge track record because of its significance to my dad. That thing was priceless. Definitely not my, not my brightest moment. I, I, hopefully some of you can commiserate. Talk to me later about your own youthful ignorance and giving away really expensive things and make me feel better. We count lots of things as valuable, don't we? Like possessions, um, trinkets, accomplishments, relationships, talents. Have you ever thought of what brings you value? Or you ever thought about what brings value to an organization or, or to a team? Or what makes somebody, some individual valuable to you in a relationship or maybe even to, to a team or a community or something like that? You know, as Christians, value is to be something that's intrinsic to us because we have been made in the image of God, right? Like in the very beginning, in the creation account of humanity, we see God getting his hands dirty, right? Reaching around in the mud and, and fashioning and forming our first human dad. And then he breathed into Adam the breath of life. And so we see that intrinsically we are valued because God's imageness is on every human being you will ever meet how far we've come from deriving our value from God to so many other things. That's where Paul's taking us tonight. He's, he's going to talk to us about value. He's going to talk to us about profit and loss, about gains and deficits, about entirely new categories of ascribing value and worth to things in his life because he met Jesus. We've been walking through the book of Philippians for forever And we're in chapter 3, so if you have a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 3. We took a detour last week because we were kind of doing a fall kickoff, kind of laid down some of our vision as a ministry, as a young professional's ministry, the drive reaching out uh, to you and your demographic in this city. Uh, But before that, I was in Philippians chapter 3, and we saw early on in that chapter, uh, Paul 
kind of come down pretty hard on some unsavory characters in Philippians chapter 3 in the first couple of verses. We call these guys Judaizers because they were Jewish individuals that were running around trying to get Gentiles to live like Jews. And really quickly, Paul swings the heresy hammer in verse 2 of chapter 3. And he says, listen, guys, Christians, Philippians, I want you to beware of these guys. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the, the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. The gist of these guys' message was Jesus plus something else equals salvation. Jesus plus strict adherence to the Mosaic law, strict adherence to the Jewish rite of circumcision. It was Jesus plus something else. And Paul wasn't having that. Paul was going to war against the notion that it was Jesus plus anything else equaling salvation. And so Paul, what he's doing here, he's calling these guys dogs because they're barking out false doctrine. He's calling them evil workers because they were doing the work of the evil ones, suggesting that somebody could be right with God based on their own performance and their own achievements. He calls them the false circumcision because they were trusting in a physical operation instead of the spiritual work that God had to do in everyone's heart, coming and cutting away a heart of stone and making room for a heart of flesh that comes alive to God in Christ. And so early on in this third chapter of Philippians, man, Paul is jealously guarding the truth of the gospel because it's vitally important. It is the one most, it's the most important thing to him as we're going to see in this passage. Now, Paul being a masterful teacher, uh, he was anticipating the question from his hearers. He knew that they were wondering in their heads, so okay, so Paul, how do we know that we're not being duped? by these false teachers? How do we know that we're not falling for this gospel of Jesus plus? And so in verse three, Paul describes three different characteristics, three different marks of a genuine Christian, someone he calls the true circumcision. This is where we were the other week, just catching you up. And Paul says, listen, if you really belong to Jesus, there's three marks in your life. One, we worship in the spirit. Two, we glory in Christ Jesus. And three, he says, we put no confidence in the flesh. Now, this is where we're picking up tonight because this is where Paul begins to talk about value and worth and esteeming value. See, when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, man, everything about how Paul calculated things, everything about how Paul added value and determined worth and everything that was important to him, and those things got flipped upside down on their head. And so Paul talks about value, but he does it in a really interesting way, a kind of a roundabout way. He temporarily adopts one of the attitudes of these Judaizers. He temporarily takes one of the negative things that he talked about in verse 3, not putting your confidence in your flesh, and he elevates his accomplishments and his credentials. He starts tooting his own horn and talking about his flesh, not to brag, but in order to show us two things. One, the folly in trusting our flesh, in trusting our accomplishments and our credentials in our quest to find value and significance, but Two, and probably more important, to steer us clear from ever thinking that our performance, that our credentials, that our resume is worthy currency to purchase God's acceptance and God's love. Both of those things are dead ends. And so Paul says here in verse four, he says, 
He says in the end of verse three, don't put confidence in the flesh. Verse four in the Greek, it almost reads like this. But if you were gonna do that, if you were gonna put confidence in your flesh, if you were gonna put, put faith in and trust in your accomplishments and in your external identifiers, listen, you wouldn't hold a candle next to me. That's what he's saying here. See, Paul had some pretty impressive flesh. Look look what he says in verse four there, chapter three, verse four. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He's, He's setting them up here. He's saying, guys, I have more confidence than all of you to lean on my resume. And he begins this list in verses five and six, these credentials and accomplishments that would have made any Jew in his day super envious. Paul had the right heritage, the right schooling, the right zealous exploits. Paul had it all. This is what Paul's trophy wall would have looked like. Did you get that picture up? This is what his trophy wall would have looked like. Verse five and verse six, all of these accomplishments and credentials and important things that gave him passage in the world that he called home, the religious world of Judaism, significance and power and prestige, all of the things that made him really something in the eyes of his fellow man. But there were also the things that he thought pleased God and brought him favor with God and acceptance with God. And so I wonder, you know, like as we get into the text, I wonder what would be up on your, your trophy wall, right? What things would make you feel significant and important? What things would make you envied in the world in which you live? What things would you say would commend you to God? Maybe, maybe turn God's head in your direction. Now, Paul doesn't hang out here long tooting his own horn placing stock in his own flesh. He quickly moves on. Verse seven, he says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul says those things that I used to esteem, that that used to get me ahead in the world, that gave me value and significance and purpose. Now that I have eyes to see rightly, I recognize those things as loss. Why? Why? Why do you think Paul recognized those as something that was a loss to him now that he had met Jesus? Any takers? Yeah. Okay, okay. All the time that he spent doing those things, they kind of took away from really knowing Jesus. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. In a sense, yeah. You can't run and then eat donuts? That's the whole reason you run, isn't it? I work out so I can eat. Paul saw these things now. Though they were important, he now could see them as a detriment because really they blinded him from the grace of God that was offered in Christ. They hadn't really provided him any real righteousness to stand before a holy God. Rather, they gave him a false hope in human performance. 
Paul recognized when he truly understood the gospel that it wasn't about how good he could be and what he did for God, but that it was, it was a completely different algorithm. It was what God had done for him and on his behalf. And so we see in verse seven, it says, for the sake of Christ, he's counted all things as loss. That word for there, it literally means that Christ had stepped in between all of the other things in his life. The word in the Greek, it's dia. It means through, it means in between. That's, that's exactly what Jesus did. He came in between everything else in Paul's life. On the road to Damascus, if you're familiar with that story, man, Jesus, the crucified risen savior, revealed himself to Paul, revealed himself to Saul of Tarsus. That's the name that he went by his Jewish name, and Jesus stepped in between Saul of Damascus and all of his old ideals. And at the end of that encounter, Jesus was preeminent. Jesus was supreme. Jesus was the surpassing value. And so I asked the question, is the same true for us, right? Like when we met Jesus, when we first got saved, do you remember it? Man, there was so much joy and excitement and intimacy and passion. It was for me. What happened? Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. That's what happened. We got sucked into religion. We got sucked into a righteousness of doing instead of a righteousness of being. And we'll see that. We'll see that play out in verse nine. But Paul doesn't stop here in verse seven. He takes it even further. In seven, he's like, you know what? That impressive list of credentials, I counted all as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Verse eight, he takes it even further. More than that, verse eight, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. I already said it, everything changed when Paul met Christ. There was this radical reorientation concerning everything that he once held dear. It's it's why Paul's definitions of profit and loss had to be rearranged. What used to be of value to him wasn't anymore. That word that he uses for loss there in seven and eight, in the Greek is not a neutral word. It's actually a negative word. The idea is I'm going in the red I'm going backwards here. This isn't a break even kind of thing. It's going in the hole. Why? Again, because Paul recognized how easily the all things of life could displace Jesus and begin to function as counterfeit gods in his life. His credentials, his performance, his pedigree, these things, they all built on Paul's ego and they drew attention to his accomplishments, his ingenuity, his hard work. And now by grace, Paul saw that all things, anything could become a distraction from the greatest good. And what was the greatest good for Paul? It was the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And so he calls all things rubbish. That word literally is dung, feces, crap, the stuff we deposit in toilets. Paul's like everything else is garbage, it's trash, it's poop. Now, this initially led me to believe that Paul regarded everything in his life before Jesus as absolutely, utterly useless and having no value to him anymore. But that's not what he's saying here at all. 
Because if we look at Paul's life in and throughout the book of Acts as he's planning churches in the early church, we never see him ignoring his Jewish heritage or pretending that he wasn't this influential, well-connected Jewish or Roman citizen. We regularly see him utilizing his knowledge of the law and his connections as a Pharisee or his lineage. I mean, Paul used every advantage that he had to proclaim and preach the gospel, which indicates that Paul isn't necessarily devaluing all things but rather he is increasing the value of knowing Jesus Christ. Paul's making a comparison here, okay? It's kind of like when Jesus said, if anybody comes to me and doesn't hate their mother and hate their father and their brother and their sister and their son and their daughter, even his own life, then he can't follow me or be my disciple. That is ridiculous that Jesus would say that if we misunderstand what Jesus is doing. Jesus is setting up a comparison here. He's not talking about a literal hatred. He's speaking comparatively. Compared to one's devotion to Christ and compared to the call of discipleship on our lives, it should look like hatred in comparison. And Paul's doing the same thing here. See, this is a question of value. That's where Paul is taking us. He's getting at the million dollar question, where do you place your value? What do you use? How do you determine what is of value in your life? How do you interpret what's valuable to God? Paul's encounter with Jesus left him with one startling conclusion that whatever is not of Christ, whatever does not come from Christ, whatever is not gained through a pursuit of knowing Christ was never going to be profitable to him. And so for Paul, Jesus became his standard for valuation. Jesus became the very thing that he ran through the filter to evaluate whether something had value or not in his life. And Paul's trying to do the same thing for us. He's trying to get us to a place where we can rightly appraise the things in our lives, which means we need to do the hard work of determining what are the all things that are competing for the surpassing value in your life. Is it sex? Is it success? Is it comfort? Is it marriage? Is it a better job? Is it your morally perfect record? What is it? What is that thing that is the surpassing value of your life that you put all of your time, your treasures, and your talents into pursuing? What are the all things that are displacing Jesus Christ in our life as the one surpassing value? Listen, Jesus might not be valuable to you because you might not be saved. You might not be a Christian. You might have gone to church and you might have done all of the Christian activity, but you might never have repented and confessed of your sins, acknowledging that you have been trusting in your trophy wall to be right with God. I don't say that patronizingly. I say that tremblingly. I say that hopefully that God would begin speaking to you and drawing you to himself, revealing that you have been placing all of your faith in your performance, not in the performance of the only one who counts, Jesus. See, Paul's list of flesh here, it serves as a warning to us. That trophy wall in verses five and six, all of those things aren't inherently bad. I mean, did you see the list? Put put five and six up there. Israelite, Tribe of Benjamin, 
Hebrew of Hebrews, half of those things Paul had no, no, uh, no choice in, right? He didn't, he didn't choose to be born as, as an Israelite or in the tribe of Benjamin. He didn't control any of those things. And yet Paul is showing us that things as simple as race and ethnicity and nationalism and education and pedigree, that these things can become the very foundation that we draw our identity from and our significance and our value from and then turn around and expect God to love us because of those things. Paul is telling us that immorality and evil doesn't just look bad, dark, and ugly. It can look good and nice and moral and like a really religious person. Man at his worst and man at his best, it's still flesh. And flesh profits nothing. Paul's saying that anything apart from Christ and his righteousness are ultimately flesh offerings. And those of you who were here two weeks ago, you remember my definition of flesh. Flesh is man outside of Christ, woman outside of Christ. Anything apart from Christ on which we base the hope of our salvation, our identity, our significance, our value. Flesh is the sum total of of our accomplishments and ingenuity and offerings that are meant to impress both man and God. And we do this all the time, guys. We think God owes us something based on the fact, well, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm not bad as that guy, that girl. I go to church, I'm a moral person, I give money, I serve the homeless. Surely, surely God looks at me and looks at my moral record and loves me based on how well I treat other people. I've never killed anyone. And Paul's saying that anything that is done in the flesh is bankrupt before God. Why? I've said this since I moved here. Because the standard of God's righteousness is so high and so unattainable. Man, you could tell me of 999,999 things that you have kept perfectly according to God's law. And all it takes is one slip up, one mistake, one missing the mark. And the full brunt of God's judgment and weight is on your head. And so if Christ isn't the one thing, guys, the supreme value, the preeminent pursuit in our life, then chances are pretty good that you are trying to find your identity and value in something that cannot bear the brunt of that weight. It will fail you. And then your constructs of God will fail you. And so nothing outside of Jesus Christ and his righteousness can rescue us. And so how do we do this, right? How do we guard ourselves from falling into this trap of placing our confidence in our flesh, in our accomplishments, in our credentials? Where do we go if we recognize, okay, there are some all things in my life that are getting in the way of Jesus being the supreme value here. What do we do? We go to the gospel. Look at verse nine. Paul says in verse eight, I count everything rubbish so that I may gain Christ, verse nine, and may be found in him, Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Knowing Christ means being found in Christ with the righteousness that comes from God, not a righteousness that comes from our own hard work. Knowing Christ has everything to do with acknowledging our inability to live worthy of God's acceptance and approval. Listen, you can't be good enough. You can't be moral enough. You can't be Christian enough. 
That's the bad news that precedes the good news. The good news is Jesus can, and he did. And he's willing to grace that acceptable and worthy life to you. You get Jesus' A+. Jesus was the only one who ever lived a life that pleased God. And it pleases God for us to receive his son, his life. That's the good news of the gospel. The bad news is you can't live the life. But many of us keep trying to do it, keep trying to earn God's love and earn God's acceptance. Even after we become believers. For many of us in here, we live in condemnation and guilt so long trying to gain something we've already received become something that we already are, righteous, loved, accepted by God, because we've learned to listen to the voice of the liar and the enemy that tells us, well, if you really love God and really were a Christian, you stop sinning. That's the voice of the enemy, y'all. Romans 5 says that we have obtained our introduction into this grace in which we stand. I stand in grace and I fall in grace. That's never a license to sin. That is a motivation to never sin against a God who loves me so much. That has covered every one of my sins, past, present, and future. And so Paul says, listen, the gospel is about receiving a righteousness that comes from God, not that comes from your own hands. And Paul is contrasting these two kinds of righteousness, the do-it-yourself kind and the God-gifted kind. The do-it-yourself kind, it's worthless. It's kind of like building your own printing press, making all of your own dollar bills and trying to go and spend them. They are useless and worthless. You might, you might fool a couple people for a little while, but in the end, it's bankrupt before God and the government. Don't try it. But there is a righteousness, I mean, unless they look really good and then holler at me. No, I'm just playing. I'm really joking. There is a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And listen, this righteousness that comes from God, it doesn't just issue from his throne as if God kind of dips in the pool of righteousness and pours it out on you. There's a theological term that, that, that it, it's called imputed righteousness. It is the idea that God has imputed his righteousness into your account. And so that when God looks at you, he sees you as righteous, but you're not really righteous. Most of the reformers believe in that. I, I, I don't. I believe there is an imputed righteousness as well as an imparted righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that God made, 5.21 says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are righteous because the righteous one lives inside of you, both in your account, God looks at you judiciously as if you are no longer guilty of your sin. Praise God. And he looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Christ because Christ dwells in us, imparted and imputed. You can forget all of that if you need to, but the good news of the gospel is, is that we receive the very righteousness of God inside our lives. We're talking about a righteousness that matches everything that God requires from those he has called into relationship with himself. This is good news. God gives you what he requires. If he didn't, we would have no hope. But we do have hope and his name is Jesus. And he came and he lived the life we could not live and he died the death we all deserved. And he offers that free gift of salvation, which is forgiveness of sins. But it's so much more than that. It is eternal life. 
that we begin to live and experience right now. You want significance and value in your life, meaning and purpose? Man, bow your knee to Jesus Christ, the one who created you and the one who calls you out of death and out of darkness and out of sin. And it only comes from God. And so God meets the standards of his righteous requirements himself. And when we confess and repent, Confession means to agree that I am a sinner and that I am separated from God's holiness. That's what it means to confess. It means to agree. And when I repent, when I change my mind and I change my heart, I change my direction and I begin moving towards a passionate pursuit of Jesus. The Bible says that we pass from death to life and it is a gift that God gives, repentance. And if you have never done that tonight, man, please do that. I'm not gonna make you walk an aisle. But I'm begging you, man, respond to the free gift of salvation. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died for your sins and God arose from the dead, you will be saved. Some of y'all can't make life, some of y'all can't make life work because you're still dead in your sins. And God wants to give you his righteousness. He wants to give you his son, the very life of his son. And so I said earlier, there's a righteousness of doing That's what the Pharisees were all about. Do, 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 do this, do that, do this, do that. But there's a righteousness of being that precedes all of our doing. And a righteousness of being comes from being born again, being transformed by the gospel and being shaped by Jesus. You can't do until you be. Horrible grammar, great theology. Okay, and so in verse nine, Paul is unpacking the essence of his soteriology, his salvation theology right here in verse nine. Righteousness comes from God, not by your hand, from the law. And the goal, the goal in growing us up in maturity now is so that we could join Paul in his same passionate plea in verse 10. Now listen to Paul. You remember where he's at? He's in jail. He's chained 24 hours a day, seven days a week to a Roman guard. He doesn't know if he's losing his head. And this is Paul's prayer, that I might know him, verse 10, that I might know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death so that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. I mean, we do not want you guys to know about facts here. We're not interested in acquainting you with facts or an intellectual conviction of their reality. We want you to know Jesus. We want you to know him. That's what Paul says. I want to know him. He's talking about an appropriation of the life of Jesus into the very being of those who know him. The knowledge that Paul speaks of is a personal knowledge. Do you know Jesus? I'm talking intimately. The very one who has joined his life into your life, his spirit coming and calling you home. This is so critical to our proclamation of the gospel. I don't want you to know about Jesus. I want you to know Jesus. There is an ocean of glory in Christ Jesus for us to know and experience. And it begins when we forsake all other lovers and we allow Jesus to be our standard of evaluation. Now, practically speaking, what does this look like for Jesus to be our standard evaluation? We learn to let Colossians 3.17 guide our decision-making. Here's a a practical way for us to begin to do this. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus. Here's the question. 
Can I take the name of Jesus and can I stamp it upon this decision, whatever it is, without apology, without embarrassment, without any rationalization, because this decision is so consistent with the nature and the character of Jesus Christ. You start asking that question, you're going to be like, oh, I can't eat that third donut. Maybe, I don't know. Jesus, can I stamp your name upon this relationship, upon this job change, upon this compromising situation that I really feel pulled towards, but I know is inconsistent with who I am in Jesus. Jesus became Paul's standard evaluation for everything in his life and everything else became garbage compared to a passionate pursuit of knowing Christ so that we can make Christ known. Meditate on this passage this week, Colossians 3.17. Meditate on it, memorize it and start asking that question, Jesus, can I stamp your name on this? without rationalization, without embarrassment. Jesus, what is your relationship to this thing, this relationship, this person in my life? I mean, if you have been trusting in your own performance and your own accomplishments to find value, to be right with God, it's an empty pursuit. God does not know your flesh offerings. He does not recognize the you that's shaped by flesh. By flesh, he only recognizes the you that has been shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for real, if, if, you, if you wanna be right with God, if you want to confess Jesus for the first time, if this is making sense to you and you have been trusting in a righteousness of your own doing, then see me afterwards so I can talk with you, pray with you, tell you more about Jesus. Thanks for listening to this podcast. We would love to see you on Tuesday night, 7 p.m. in the Student Center at First Baptist Orlando. You can check us out on Facebook. It is the easiest way to get in touch with us and find out what is going on in our ministry.